everyone. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Today, I'm without my trusty, loyal, brave companion, Pete. But in some ways, someone who is uh, even closer to me. Because he's also named Connor. And he spells it the right way. Um, <laughs> that is... <laughs> it's very important. I feel strongly about that. One N is acceptable, but the ER, I don't fuck with that. The, the ER is like, what are we even doing here? You know, It's a no. It's a no. That's never been seen on the island of Ireland, and I reject it. I rebuke it. Absolutely. We reject it wholesale. So that's that's my dude, my friend from online, Connor Goldsmith, who is a letter agent. Hey, welcome, man. <laughs> Sorry, I'll um, shut up. Let me let, 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 me let you know <laughs> intro shebang. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you talk a lot. I just wanted to say to be clear with everyone, uh, Connor is many things, but most relevantly right now, he is an a-, a literary agent specializing in science fiction and fantasy. So he's particularly suited to our show. Hi everyone, uh, happy to be here. Um, I uh, yeah, I am a senior agent at Fuse Literary. Um, I do a lot of nonfiction, but on the fiction end, my list is almost exclusively sci-fi fantasy, and, and that's sort of. What I have been, I guess, known for insofar as I am known for anything in the agenting world. So uh, it's always fun to get a chance to talk about that. And I know it can be kind of a mysterious aspect of the business. So I always like to uh, help demystify that if I can. Well, I'm I'm excited to hear more and I'm sure our listeners are, too. And I guess on that note, I mean, just tell us, you know, in broad terms, what is it like to be an agent in science fiction and fantasy now, what is it like to be championing these particular books and writers in 2020? Well, it's a challenge. It's interesting. Um, so, you know, I, I only do adult fiction. So, uh, well, I mean, if, if a client of mine who I repped for an adult book then writes like a YA, I will rep it, but it's not my specialty. Um, and the adult SFF market, I would say it's a perennial. They're like, we'll always be readers. Um, and so there will always be, uh, a space for it in the marketplace, but the mid list, um, so like to just, I don't want to get too, uh, jargony without explaining myself. Cause I, I don't know how, um, you know, publishing lingo savvy, uh, your listeners necessarily are going to be. So just if, if I say anything and you're like, what, what does that mean? Just ask me and I'll, I'll go back. So the mid list, um, is sort of like you have your big best, you have like, like John Scalzi is a bestseller. NK Jemison is a bestseller. These are big, you know, shining stars in the industry. Um, and that that's not, you know, most people are not a John Scalzi or a Nora Jemison or a Victoria Schwab or, you know, any number of other people who, you know, sell bazillions of copies and get, you know, six, seven figure advances and, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, most people are just successful working author. Well, well, most people who are successful working authors are just, you know, making their way and they sell and they earn out their advances and they do fine. And, you know, they probably don't 100% make their living off writing and they, uh, you know, have a dedicated fan base, but they're not, like these mega stars shining in the firmament and that's the mid list. And unfortunately, um, given that the mid list is like, you know, 80, 90% of all authors, and this is in any genre. And this is true across all genres. The mid list has contracted significantly 
uh, over the last, I guess I would say 15 years in sort of like a steady crunch uh, because publishing itself has contracted. Um, there are fewer books being published. There are fewer opportunities for debuts. Um, and that's not, you know, to say that it doesn't all still happen and it doesn't all still work, but it, um, it's a challenging time. I think the most uh, sort of salient kind of obvious example um, that I sometimes point to is, you know, they, everybody says urban fantasy is dead. Um, and the thing is, that's not really true because urban fantasy is, which, you know, is the sort of like Anita Blake or, um, uh, uh, got Dresden files or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, basically that there's, there's a huge, huge market for those types of stories. And that's usually what, you know, you see on television or things like that. Um, and the market for it never went away. It's just that the self-pub market for that flourished. And, ah, interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, if those, if self-published authors are publishing good urban fantasy at a price point that's like, you know, a $6 ebook, um, your traditionally published urban fantasy that, typically would have been like a mass market paperback and an ebook. But first of all, the mass market paperback is pretty much dead uh, outside of romance. And the ebook is going to be at a price point that's much higher than that because the traditional publishers, you know, have a higher price point on their ebooks. So it's not so, you know, when we say like urban fantasy is dead, I can't do anything with urban fantasy. First of all, it's not always true, but I'd be very hesitant to take one on because it's really hard to sell it traditionally right now. And that's because the market still exists, but people are getting it elsewhere. So that's just one example of like a way that that was a huge part of the Midlist was this urban fantasy, paranormal romance, all of that stuff, like the true blood kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I would say that nowadays, uh, sort of what I think we're trying to find is something that can be sort of this big tentpole in the conversation. Um, and a lot of the time that means, I mean, what I always say I want when I'm looking for fiction is I want something that feels like I've never read it before. And, uh, you know, that's hard to quantify because people ask, what do you want? And I'm like, I want something new. And it's like, okay, great. That's not helpful, <laughs> Connor. And I'm like, I realize that that's not enormously helpful, but you know, what I think is, what I think there will always be room for in the market is, is something that really comes along and just changes the conversation. So like, um, you know, a, a Nora Jemison is a really bold example of someone who just kind of came in and wrote something that was different from what other people had seen. And it really blew up and people responded to it. Um, you know, I think she's sort of the great SFF success story of her generation. Um, probably the most significant writer in the genre at this point of her, you know, age cohort. So 
if I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, there's a couple couple of major major takeaways there. One is yeah, this, I'm rambling, it, so feel free to cut me off at any point. Once I'm like free associating, and I just go into like <laughs> a world of tangents, you're allowed to you're allowed to interrupt me. Well, that was all great, and it was all we have a Connor yeah. bond. You can just like you can just like other Connor. Please be quiet. I need to interject. Exactly the sacred bond of Connors. That's yeah. <laughs> you know, Connors. We have a we have a secret Connor conspiracy that none of you are invited to. Um, oh God! In fact. <laughs> let's not get it let's not get into secret conspiracies based on names or that the the you know the twitter people are going to be the, 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 the anime avatar guys are gonna be after me again they're um, gonna be doing numerology based on our tweets or whatever um, yeah no it's not gonna be good so so what i'm getting here is number one as an agent now especially in, in uh, science fiction and fantasy there is a really it's very important for you to distinguish between what writers and readers may be doing broadly and what the industry is doing, because those are just exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. And partly it's interesting because I think a lot of people within the industry that have like, like people working for publishers would kind of like deny that that's the case because, you know, that's where their bread is buttered. Right. But <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I find that like with the urban fantasy question, that's a conversation that like agents and editors that I'm friends with, we've had that conversation pretty openly on Twitter because there's no real solution to it. It's like, that's just one where, okay, we've had, we've just seeded this incredibly popular subgenre to the self pub people. What does that mean? How can we fix it? I don't think we can without lowering the price point on trad pub eBooks a lot. And that's unlikely to happen. So, you know, it's, it's just those kinds of conversations. I think we, you know, we're never going to, I, no, you're not going to find people going like, here's a huge flaw with our publishers, you know, like, because that's not, you don't want to like start talking about the things you're doing wrong necessarily, or, or not optimally, I guess would be a better way of putting it. Um, but I think that, you know, those demands of the changing marketplace are something that everybody's really thinking a lot about. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody it's in no one's interest to deny the fact that that happened or the fact that the midlist has contracted because, you know, on some level you want the writers to know what's going on because I, I don't, can't tell you how many conferences I've been to where someone starts pitching me their urban fantasy. That's like, you know, perfectly good, but it is in that sort of like well-worn Harry Dresden, Anita Blake kind of like occult detective realm. And I basically have to tell them like, I'm not going to be able to sell this. So your options are you could go a self-publishing route, which, you know, the thing is that requires a lot of work on your end. You don't then have a publicity team. You don't have, you know, a marketing team. You don't have an editor who's shepherding your work. So there are ups and downs, but you know, and if you're listening to this and you're an urban fantasy writer, I don't want you to think like, oh, it's impossible because, I, you know, I'm speaking sort of in broad terms here. Um, if you have written something that is that feels really fresh and unique, it's there's there's a there's a potentially a place for it. Um, I think that the occult detective urban fantasy, which is like the one I'm using as an example, I think that's probably the hardest thing to sell right now. Uh, still, which is which is frustrating because it's been like that for a while now. Um, but uh, e- but even in that realm, like you know, Daniel Jose Older's Half Resurrection Blues uh, exists, and you know, is a perfectly 
like well-supported series. It's not like it's impossible to do that if you do something a little different, which is sort of what Daniel did. Um, or, I mean, uh, it's sort of, I don't know if I would call it urban fantasy because it's not really urban, but it has that kind of feel, but it's also like a post-apocalyptic story. So it's, it's like complicated to categorize it. But see, the, I'm talking about Rebecca Roanhorse's um, Channel of Lightning and that series. But, you know, that that's a great example Like because I was just before I even said the title of it, I was like, well, this doesn't really count because here are all the things that make it really different. So <laughs> like, but you know what I mean? So that's sort of, I would say that's really the number one thing that we're all sort of on the hunt for is just something that feels familiar in certain ways, because part of the appeal of sci-fi fantasy is like that it, it's built on a tradition that you understand and that people like, you know, if you wrote a space opera and it doesn't feel anything at all, like a space opera people have written before, then is it a space opera? Probably not. Like, you know, it's not to say that SFF is inherently more tropey, but I think there's like, you know, there are archetypal structures that people like, and when you know them, you can play with them. So, right. You know, I think what we're looking for is basically something that builds on that, sort of infrastructure that people like, but does it in some, in a really fresh new way. And I wish there was a way we could quantify that for people that was like, here's all the things you need to do. But if we could do that, we'd all be a lot richer than we are. Um, yeah. Or, so. or alternately, <laughs> alternately you'd be out of a job because intuition would be well, translated right. into like machine learning or whatever. Exactly. But. Right. No, we'd be, it'd we'd be agenting by algorithm at this point. So, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get there. It's probably 20 years out, but. Uh, so I, this is okay. We're getting we're opening up to a lot of really interesting things here, and, and you know what? You've inspired me. After I ask you this next question, I might I'm thinking that uh, I might put you on the spot and ask you what you think of my current project because I'm I'm just curious to get your read based on all of these things sure. we're talking about. I mean, but, it's um, hard without seeing the pages, but you can give me a pitch and I'll and I'll let you know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm honestly genuinely curious. I know it's I know it's not uh, you know it's it's just an informal thing, but you're making me think a lot here about how this goes down. And I think that like that what's interesting to me about all, all these conversations we're having is we kind of weave our way. There's this dialectic, right? Between originality broadly defined and between the way that publishing goes down the way that querying and pitching works, which is that I, as an author, and then later you as an agent need to, it, it all goes down through comparisons, right? Like you have to compare yeah, well, directly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, well, the Iliad is like based on Hittite legends. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing new under the sun. So, you know, like everybody is drawing on a tradition in some way or another. And the question is, what are you you're taking these sort of pieces that you've been given and you're building something new out of it? And how new is what you've built and how urgent is it that the market see it? Because, you know, what what it really what it always is for me when I get a fiction submission that I end up signing is like, I'm reading it and I go, Oh man, this is really like this. People need to read this. Like this is going to contribute in some way to sort of the conversation that's occurring in the genre. Um, and you know, it needs to have that wow factor, which is sometimes a conceptual wow factor. Sometimes it's just that the voice is astonishing. Um, you know, but a lot of the time, what interests me and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm something of a, um, of a weirdo. Uh, I, you know, editors have always said to me, including editors who've never bought anything I've sent them. I've always been, I've, I've been very, always very happy to get a submission from you because I know it's going to be weird. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this is, I'm speaking personally, like I can't, you know, there are plenty of agents I'm sure who would love just like something very, very commercial that, 
hits all of the, you know, its marks and, and et cetera. That's just not my, my taste. Um, and there's nothing wrong with sort of very like commercial stuff. Uh, I mean, I mean the word commercial would imply that there's definitely nothing wrong with it from a sales perspective. Um, it's just not, you know, for me, I need, I need to sort of hook into something that's new or different about it. Cause I think that's what gets a conversation going around a book in a way that, uh, builds an author's career up as opposed to just, you know, making it a product that people enjoy. It needs, it needs to have a life beyond the initial sale is sort of how I feel about it. Anyway, interesting. what were you saying? I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's just so much, there's so much to unpack here, but I'm going to put you on the spot and uh, pitch my current novel to you and see, get your, I want your most cold blooded reaction. You don't have to worry about buttering me up. Like it's well underway. So it's going to get done. You're not going to stop oh, me from I finishing won't. it. Don't and, worry uh, about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to just give those caveats, <laughs> but um, so I think the first thing, uh, the first word that's important here is vampires, but don't get too hung up on that because it's also about like uh, the ties, sort of the deep blood magic lore that that will tie back into American empire, essentially imagining like the American industrial and intelligence complex having this sort of blood magic cult behind it. And then you have someone who comes back seeking revenge on this very waspy family that's been deeply tied into this and it's narrated from the point of view of one of these <laughs> uh, ambivalent yet very privileged wasps uh, who's going to fall in love with the person who is seeking revenge on his family who also happens to be a vampire and there's a lot of Norse myth folded in there as well I'm not really sure what you directly compare it to and the vampire thing was actually kind of uh, originally this started out as like a former Soviet super soldier story and the vampire thing just sort of naturally uh, revealed itself to me Anyway, what does that sound like to you? <laughs> well, it sounds like a bad pitch of what might be a really good novel. So I'm, I'm gonna, sorry, Connor. Um, forgive me. I, I, if I, <laughs> see, I, didn't, I didn't write this out in advance. I, if I'd written it out in right. advance, I'm actually good at writing pitch letters, but sorry. No, it's me for fine. That. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing you. But also, um, <clears throat> I, I just think, you know, sometimes you're not, uh, you don't have time to write it down. Sometimes you're pitching, you know, you're doing what we call an elevator pitch. Um, although please don't actually pitch agents in an elevator. If we're at a conference, it's very irritating. I know that it's what we call it, but like, we're not going to remember. And we're usually on our way to a panel or something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) just to be candid, like, you know, it's not the time. Um, also not the time is like in the bathroom. Like I, you know, if I'm at the urinal, please don't pitch. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I think that you started by sort of apologizing for the premise, which you shouldn't do. Um, because here's the thing, like, yes, vampires are, uh, they're cyclical and they come and go. They sort of ebb and flow, one might say. Um, but I think like vampires are due to be back. It's just like someone has to do it. And being the first one is risky. Um, because like you, you know, once, sort of the floodgates open. There's always like a whole, basically like vampires and zombies tend to be on like a 10 year rotation with each other. Um, and it's like, we, we, we reach saturation point with one of them. There's a theory actually that I think is interesting. And there's been like, it might just be correlation rather than causation, but, uh, people have studied it that like under, um, Republican administrations, vampires always come back and under democratic (laughs) and under democratic administration, zombies always come back because it sort of reflects like a zeitgeist fear because 
the vampires are like, you know, the oligarchs who are gonna eat you. And then zombies are sort of like the faceless horde. Like it's often like an um, immigration fear metaphor. Um, so I don't know if that's actually true, but it's sort of an interesting uh, thought. Anyway, all that to say, um, you know, if you're writing a book with vampires, like be proud of your vampires. Don't, you know, when you when you open by undermining yourself, it's just not a good position to put yourself in. Like, you know, uh-huh. so that's just. But also, um, you want to lead with character and conflict. Like, you want to lead with yeah. who, like, who's this about? What's going on? You don't world build for me in the pitch. Um, this is just a tip for you. If you're, you have an agent, right? So it's like you don't need. Oh uh, yeah, this is this is wrapped. Yeah. But like I, I was just curious. Like uh, I no, honestly, I'm just, I was just. I, yeah. This is just advice, I guess, for like anyone listening who's going to be pitching. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Turn me apart. Keep going. <laughs> right. No. Because um, what I always what I always want to know in a pitch is like who it's it's very much like a who, what, when, where, why kind of thing. Um, but the more important than all of those is the who cares. Like why should I care about this? Um, so what you need to convey is like, who's the protagonist, who's the antagonist, what's the conflict and what, what are the stakes? Like, why do I give a shit? Um, so what you gave me there was more like, here's sort of the like themes and the general setting of my story. But like, you didn't tell me anyone's name. You didn't, you know, it's just not uh, like, and I'm, I'm not, you know, not trying to be mean. But uh, I do think that, you know, a way that you might want to open a pitch is like, you know, Steve, let's say, is your protagonist. Like, you know, Steve is the scion of this wealthy family. He has no idea that blah, 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 blah. And then this happens. And then this mysterious, uh, you know, blood mage person, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, if they don't, find a way to work together, uh, you know, then this terrible thing will happen and that's the stakes. And then you say, you know, uh, and they, you know, along the way, they fall in love in a star-crossed romance or something like that. You know, I, I think it helps to lead with character and to lead with conflict um, because then I get a sense of what the book is as opposed to, I think a lot of the time with fantasy people are inclined to lead with world building. And I think that's a mistake because like, you're not pitching an RPG setting. You know what I mean? Like you're pitching yeah. a narrative. Well, I appreciate um, the candor there. Cause that, that was uh, that's what I asked for. And it's really interesting to yeah. hear. I, I want to, I want to do a little apology for myself and say that when I write these things out, I do lead with the things you're talking about. I was, you know, it was my mistake to not, uh, this is not, <laughs> not uh, this is out, not, but. this is not me just like, you know, being mean. You asked for my opinion. No, on your I, I, I I'm trying to be I'm just, I'm just too vain that I can't like let this go without saying like I, I can do I can do better, but I, I, I fully, appreciate it. Totally I fully believe like, you. I fully believe you. I, I <laughs> like I said, it sounds like a good book. I just think you you framed that incorrectly. So when you so I mean, as you say, like it when you say it sounds like it could be a good book, which could just be you falling by being nice. But I mean, like I guess like it's interesting because you. Well, I'm always oh. no. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Keep going. Oh, I was just gonna say like. I because we started when we started having this conversation, it was about like theme and subgenre within the genre and all and all of that broadly. And it mm-hmm. makes perfect sense to me that you would say lead the pitch with the character, because that's like I mean, that you know, in some ways, that's storytelling 101. If you're if you're if you're not anchoring everything in character, it's just not going to be interesting, period. Right. Uh, across genre and across media. Right. But like, I guess like it. um you know, I think where I, the reason I went instinctually there sort of off the cuff is because like it's it sounded like the way that you were fitting things 
into the marketplace as an agent was precisely more about uh, themes, kind of broad aesthetics, like how can it plug into these these subgenres? But it's but it's also interesting then that the move is to go back and say like, yes, that's all true, but like first you have to sell me on the traditional storytelling aspects with to be anchored in that. Yeah, is that fair? Yeah. That, yeah, because contextualizing it is my job, not yours. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, makes sense. I want I want you to tell me that you can tell the story because if I could tell the story, I'd be telling the story. I need you to be the person telling the story, and then I can help you, you know, fit it into where it needs to go. That said, uh, you know, one thing that's important to me also in a pitch that I should mention is you, you know, the the writer conveying that they understand the market and that they see their place in it. And I actually think that like probably the worst part of your pitch, uh, not to be really mean again, <laughs> um, was when you said, uh, I don't know what I would compare it to. Yeah. yeah. That's a huge red flag. Um, because the most important thing you can do, like we said, you know, earlier, um, and this is not just true of SFF. It's true of every kind of book. Uh, the way that you sell a product, I mean, this is true in any real, really any art form, uh, is by saying, if you liked this product, you'll enjoy this product as well. Um, so the, uh, the way that you position a book is, by, is, is with what we call comp titles or comparative titles. Um, and, you know, th that's just who would this be shelved next to if it was like not alphabetical, which obviously it is, but if it was like a display of books for a specific fan, um, who would you be in the display with? And that, and that more than anything else is what contextualizes the book in the market. So what you do is like you pick, you lead with character, you pitch me on that. And then you close with like, um, you know, and I think some good comp titles would be X, Y, Z, because right now, you know, when you say, cause I, the reason I think it sounds like it could be a good book is it has a lot of themes that I'm very interested in. I like, um, books that tackle empire. I like books that tackle, uh, you know, structures of power and use, uh, sci-fi and fantasy elements to sort of tease those out and explore them. Like one of my favorite um, debuts that I didn't represent of the last like 10 years is um, the Trader Brew Cormorant by Seth Dickinson, which is, oh, love it. you know, all about colonialism and empire uh, and, you know, how people are oppressed and, and how people become uh, implicated themselves in like that oppression by trying to, find their own power within it. So, you know, I love that book because it, it specifically tackles those political questions and does it in sort of a secondary world where, you know, you can play and explore a little bit. Um, but is this that kind of book or is this, you know, when, you know, this is, uh, it, from what I can tell, it's a contemporary fantasy that takes place in our modern world. So, there are lots of contemporary fantasies that, you know, is this kind of like practical magic or is this kind of like um, the magicians or is this kind of like, uh, you know, the Dresden Files? Because those are three very different kinds of books about magicians in our contemporary world. But the, like the tone of each of those books is, is that, like really different from the other 
too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'll I'll, I'll uh, again add some apology, which is that we actually I there are some comp titles for this one. I was being a little well, bit that's, cute, but like, well, <laughs> okay, but don't be cute. Be 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 your own. Be an advocate for yourself. You're pitching. No, you're totally look, Connor. You're you're totally right to nail me on all of that. I'm just laughing at how uh, I'm just how, feeling how bitchy. I'm are. sorry to your audience. I'm a little hungover, so if I can, no, if you I know, sound, I mean, like, I, am, I sound mean. I sincerely thank you for doing that, and I think especially for people who are curious about how agents assess pitches, because like you know, you know this a million times better than me. But every time I talk to someone in the industry about uh, queries or even farther down the line submissions, like you know, you get a lot of. Uh, sighing and eye rolling about how people sabotage projects that might be really interesting and they just have no idea how to pitch them. So I think this is actually right. really no, productive. It's, it's, and it is, it is important. And, um, that kind of in-person pitching can be really fruitful. I, you know, I personally have, um, have not found clients that way. Uh, but one of my boss's, um, biggest clients, Julie Kagawa, uh, who was rep by my boss, Larry McLean, um, they met at a, at a conference. Like, and I believe it was through a pitch session, just like that one. So, you know, sometimes it works. It really can, but you have to know what you're, what you're doing. And it is harder in an in-person pitch because you don't have time to sit down and write out what you're thinking. Yeah. So I, in conclusion, I really thank you for savaging me and I probably shouldn't have said anything defensive afterwards. I just was, I was feeling so embarrassed. I was like, yeah, that it's was cute. That was it's great. cute that you're, but, it's cute that you're embarrassed. And, <laughs> and I, I just feel bad because your, your listeners don't know me and I feel like I'm, I promise I'm like a fun person. I just feel like I'm coming across very, it's, it's like, it's, it's 10 AM on a Sunday morning and I was out late last night. So if, if I sound like, if I sound like a bitch, that's why I apologize. You're just being authentic and honest, which is what I asked for. And I also, I want to add, I want to clarify for our listeners, like Connor is just doing a more direct, less varnished version of what any agent will do behind closed doors, which is like when it gets right down to brass tacks, like they have to be, you know, you, you have to be brutal about these things because you get so many queries and you have to sift through a lot of them and figure out what's actually the most compelling to you. And that's not a, that's not a nice process, right? So no. And it's my least favorite part of the process. Actually. Like I hate rejecting people. Um, but what I feel, and this is, you know, I don't do a lot of writers conferences these days because I have a lot of clients and I just, it's, it's a, it's a lot of work to do those conferences and they don't usually pay a lot of money. So it's like, you know, they'll fly you out, but then you're in Austin for three days or whatever and you have to feed yourself. Um, I, uh, my feeling is if I've, if I'm at a conference where people are pitching me, like if I've been flown out or whatever to be on faculty at a conference like that, I don't want, and people have, people have paid, these writers have paid to attend this conference typically. So I don't want to blow smoke up their ass. Like if they're paying to get FaceTime with me of all people, which is still something that feels insane to me, but is something that happens a lot uh, because of the nature of the business. You know, if they have 15 minutes with me, and that, that would be a lot. Like, usually it's like five. I don't want them, A, to waste their time. So I'll cut them off and be like, start again. You need to leave with the character. I don't understand what you're saying. Or, you know, because I don't want them to waste their time. And I also want them to get something useful out of the experience. Like, I want to help. I want their next pitch to be better. Or if I if it sounds like something I want to see, I want I want to know that it's something I want to see so they can send it to me. So, you know, I never, I'm never mean. I was like, I know you. So I was like a little bit more direct here <laughs> than I probably would be normally. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's not about being mean. It's just, I do think that being really direct and honest is important, especially in those, um, 
in that kind of a pitch session because the time is so limited and I don't want them to walk away feeling like they didn't get anything useful out of it. So that's sort of, yeah, I mean, that's, to those. that's the most professional. It sounds like the most professional and honest thing you can do. And on that note about writers, I'm talking a little about writers that you, um, you know, once you do represent them and I, other agents that I know, like, it seems like a lot of their job is, <laughs> Uh, you know, because this is a long and difficult and frustrating and rejection laden process, even once you are represented, um, a lot of it is managing the emotions of writers and keeping them on track and having them, you know, not quit writing entirely and all these things. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot to, I know there's a lot there, but like, what, what is your approach to sort of all of that kind of managing the psyche of your writers once you rep them? Yeah, I mean, well, that's something that really different agents are going to are gonna vary in how they do that, how they tackle that. Some agents are really all business, and that works for them and for their clients. Um, I tend to have a more personal relationship with my clients. They all have my, you know, I don't have, I work from home. I don't have an office line. Like, they just have my cell phone number. They can text me. They can DM me on Twitter. Um, I try to get back to them within 24 hours. Usually I get back to them immediately because I have obsessive compulsive disorder and I don't like leaving things. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, my relationship with my authors is, is sort of a friendship on some level. I mean, you have to keep it, you have to be professional. You have to keep in mind that it's a business partnership, but I want them to come to me with their concerns or with their feelings or with their anxieties. I'm not a therapist. I can't, you know, I'm not a professional if they really are down, I'll sometimes be like, do you have someone to talk to who's like, you know, actually better at this than I am? But um, I like to think that I'm an empathetic guy. And the thing is, that's such a normal part of the process. Like no one, I don't know anyone anyway, who has gone from like representation to publication without some level of anxiety about like either the submission process, because that can take forever, especially in SFF, because the manuscripts tend to be a little bit longer, right? And the houses are smaller. So you have like the imprints, I mean, uh, at the publishers. So like, you know, those editors have a million manuscripts to read and they're all like, you know, really long. And so it can take months. It could take a year. Like it can take a long time to even hear back about your submission. So, you know, that ideally that's not what happens. It, It really varies by project. But a lot of the time it's just about like, reassuring someone that I believe in their work and that I believe in their ability and that they are going to, you know, hit at some point, we just need to find the right place. Um, But then once they are acquired and they have an editor, sometimes it's about, you know, they, there's anxiety about um, an editorial note, or there's like concern about the cover or about the marketing plan. And a lot of it is, you know, I'm their advocate. I step in the middle if there is any kind of issue with the publisher. I'm the bad cop. That's my role. Because uh, I don't want my client to ever have any kind of adversary relationship with their editor or their publicist or anybody else. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm also just like the person who they can express those concerns to. Because oftentimes, you know, this is just true in any field. Oftentimes, like your greatest anxieties are things you've kind of come up with in your head. You know what I mean? Um, and that's not to say that they aren't predicated on something real. But if I can say, oh, no, 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 don't worry. You don't have to worry about that. Here's what 
is going to, you know, here are one, two, three things that are going to happen that it will resolve that in the next, you know, and they can go, oh, okay, great. Like, it's my job also to say, no, that's normal. Or to say like, you know, oh, that's a valid concern. Let me bring that to so-and-so and, you know, things like that. Um, I just think that this is a really tough business and I never say that to discourage anybody because if you want to be a writer, you should be a writer like that. You know, if you, if you have the will and the ability, you should go for it, but you know, don't quit your day job. Um, <laughs> you know, cause I mean, even authors you think of as very successful often still have a day job uh, because this industry is really tough. And in SFF, I find that, you know, SFF, I guess it's, it's, it's something that's true of, I guess, any commercial genre. So like thriller or romance or um, there are, like I said, some really big shining stars. And when you're a debut, when you're new, it's about you have to make enough of an impact that people notice you. Um, and that itself can be stressful. The stress of am I being noticed? Am I getting reviewed in the right places? Are fans finding the book? And then also the stress of, oh my God, if I am, like, if someone is noticing me, what do I do about, like, how do I deal with a bad review? How do I deal with someone being mean to me on Twitter? Um, you know, and I'm, I'm very lucky. I have a, a great list of clients, both past and present. Um, you know, I don't have anything bad to say about anybody I've worked with. Um, but it, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. It's a psychologically tricky, um, enterprise. I mean, I always say to people, you know, the court of public opinion, all that is, is scary. And I get anxiety about the idea of like people talking, like when my clients get a bad review, it upsets me. So I'm like, imagine if it was my work, that's, that's part of why I decided I wanted to be behind the scenes rather than be the product myself because, and even saying be the product is like, you know, a little, brutal but you are a product you are a brand um and there's a loss of control that just goes along with that as part of the nature of the beast you can't really be uh an artist and maintain control of your environment because the career is so unpredictable because your work exists to be critiqued because you the goal is to have enough people talking about you that people buy the book. So, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing. And I think that I basically encourage anyone who wants to be a writer to like have a therapist, but I encourage everybody to have a therapist. So that's not really <laughs> specific to this. Um, I just think, you know, insofar as I can help, it's by grounding expectations in the, in the field, by explaining the process to people by just listening to concerns or fears and, and doing my best to be a sounding board because, you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm here to be your person, whatever that may be throughout this process. And I'm a very, I'm like a very full service kind of agent. I was asked recently by, um, so in the, on the nonfiction end, I do, um, I work with a lot of journalists and, and some celebrity talent. I'm sort of, diversifying into celebrity talent more these days. That's why I'm in LA right now, um, which is why it's so early in the morning, but it's fine. Um, I, I asked for this. I did. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, so I was meeting with a new client recently who had been, who knew one of my other clients. I'm being vague because, you know, business, but um, 
And she asked me, this new client, she was like, oh, are you also so-and-so's publicist? And I was like, oh no, I just go to everything and never shut up about her because I think she's great. You know what I mean? Like I, I think of myself as like part of the team. And so I think that moral support is part of that in, in just as much as the business and support of like, I'm going to make sure you don't get screwed on your contract. I'm going to get you more money. Like all of that. My job is sort of a more holistic than that, I think. And I, I think most agents would agree. I know you've had agents on in the past. You had um, Eric and Laura, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, they're also very, they're, they have a similar ethos, I think. And I think a lot of agents do. I would say most agents do that I know anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, and on that, so that, that uh, sounds like you're really getting after it for your clients, which is something that I admire and respect as a writer. Uh, <laughs> well, I can't, I can't say I've always been perfect. I mean, you know, you, it's a, you, I learn on the job as much as the writer does and I've made mistakes, but overall I like to think that every, you know, new, project is an opportunity for you and the writer to go bigger and better this time or to do, you know, whatever else. And I, I like growing with the author and I like having that sort of long-term relationship where we can guide the career together. So yeah, I, I, I do try my best. Awesome. I mean, not, and not to be, not to like sound like, you know, falsely humble, but I, 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 <laughs> no, I, I don't, I'm not trying to sound like, well, you know, I'm a really great guy. So, you know, but I'm, I just, you know, I do my best is what I is what I like to think. Well, that's based on what I know about this industry. That's that's one of the most honest things anyone can say, I think. So <laughs> I respect that. I, I want to ask you um, I'm going to ask you towards the end here in, in a few minutes uh, to plug your your own clients. But before we do that, I, I for the benefit of our listeners. So you, you already broke down in great detail, which I appreciate once again, my sort of off the cuff in person, but I think that was really substantive and valuable. I'm curious uh, for people who are querying by query letter, the more traditional route mm -hmm. that people, people find agents by, is there anything you want to add or expand on for, for that, that crowd about querying in general? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so right now I will say I only take uh, fiction queries on referral um, because I am sort of like loaded up right now and fiction because I, I have a hands-on approach, I'm very editorial. Um, fiction is a lot of work. And so I just can't take on much more of it right now. So I'm, I'm personally uh, only accepting fiction queries by referral right now. Or solicitation, which means like if I ask you for it. And that can be as simple as like if we tweeted, we had a tweet conversation on Twitter and like you then you know, messaging me, Hey, can I send you my career? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, I'm not, I'm not like, it's not that I want to put up a barrier. I just like need to need to sort of stem the flow a little bit because I can't take on too much more at the moment. I want to interrupt um, you and say, thank you for at least ha not having closed to queries in your Twitter username. <laughs> no, I mean, I always, I, listen, that's the thing is there's a reason why people do that because even though I'm closed to unsolicited queries at the moment, I get tons of them anyway, because people don't read my website. So I like, I totally understand why people put that in their, in their Twitter username. I really do. Um, I just choose not to, because I don't ever change. Here's the thing. I don't have like the at Connor Goldsmith name because some teenager in London has it and used it once 10 years ago. Um, and so, <laughs> so if I like, I never changed my name for like to like a spooky version for Halloween or like anything like that. I never change it because it's the only way like for people to find me is to find the name because they can't find me via 
like the at because the at is a Kate Bush lyric. It's not like anything that refers to my name because I couldn't get my name. So um, it's not because I it's not because I have some you know moral opposition to uh, to putting things in your in your header. I just don't want any SEO confusion. Um, but yeah, so in terms of what I would suggest, sorry to get that. I, I if you can't tell after listening to this podcast for a while, uh, I have kind of a roundabout way of getting to the point. I apologize. Um, well, I think it's a lot of what we've already talked about here on some level. Um, you know, for with with your initial pitch, because the the the, the theory of it is is essentially the same. You want to lead with character, with conflict, with et cetera. Um, I would say that the best way, the way, I mean, I would suggest basically that you do them the way that I write a pitch letter when I'm pitching an editor. So I can sort of lay that out for you. Um, open with like, hi, you know, you don't have to say dear Mr. Goldsmith. I'm always like, you know, that's, it's polite, but you don't have to. Um, what I always lead with is like, this is the title. Here's the word count. It's this kind of fantasy or this kind of science fiction uh, in the vein of, and then you name like two comp titles maybe. Um, in terms of comp titles, I encourage people to, so the art of the comp title is a tricky thing because you don't want to say something that's like a massive, massive, massive hit. Like if you say like a culturally enormous hit. Like if you, if you compare yourself to Harry Potter or the Hunger Games or A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, it's going to, like, that doesn't tell me anything. It's like fans of Game of Thrones will enjoy this. I'm like, well, okay, that's like most people on earth at this point. So it's, it's helpful to pick something that's a little more specific. At the same time, you do want to pick something that was successful. Um, so it's, uh, it's sort of a, a, a bit of a tightrope walk there, but I have faith in you, uh, listener. Um, I tend to advise against only using like TV film comps. Um, it's okay to use one. <clears throat> like I've pitched things as I, a, a strategy I often use actually in pitches is like, it's like X movie meets Y book. Um, because that, is a way of sort of grounding it in the marketplace. And so many properties are multimedia nowadays. Um, you know, so much of the book market is like what's IP we can get for television or Netflix or whatever. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad way to go, but if you just pitch your book without like, as this TV show meets this movie or something like that, that's, that will sort of ping to me as a red flag because I need you to know the book market or at le the very least, I need you to be conscious of, of who your colleagues would be in the book market. Um, so I would say at least one book in your comp titles, and it should preferably be a book that was published in the last like five or six years, um, because it's not helpful to say like, it's a lot like Shogun. It's like, okay, great. That was my grandfather's favorite book. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> it, it, it's a, it's a classic, but it's not really relevant to like, 2020 publishing, especially because we're selling books typically right now for like 2022. So, you know, we want something that is current in your comp title. So that's just sort of that intro there uh, to, to sort of hit the beats again in case someone's like taking notes, which is presumptuous of me to think, but why not? Um, no, someone probably you know, is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, hi, uh, you know, 
Hi, Connor. I'm writing today about uh, title, my debut novel, um, complete at however many words. It's a literary historical fantasy or a contemporary or dark contemporary fantasy or a space opera or, you know, whatever uh, in the vein of this book and that book. I, you know, I think it will also appeal to fans of this TV show. Like that would be a great way to open up. And then I just dive right into the pitch, which is usually I, I advise people to like, um, basically like, it's like you're writing the back cover copy of the book. What you want to do is without, you know, giving it, it all away, give me a sense of who the characters are, what the conflict is and why I should give a shit. And that, you know, there are professionals at the publishing houses whose job it is to come up with that back cover copy. And they're very, very good at it. But you can try your hand uh, and hopefully come up with something pretty captivating. I mean, I've actually had authors where the pitch that they the, like the the sort of copy that they wrote in the query letter with some modifications is what ends up being on the back cover. Sometimes that just they're like, oh, yeah, that's good. Um, and, you know, what I would advise against in the pitch, which should only be a couple paragraphs, um, is like, don't ask too many rhetorical questions. Um, like what would you do if Bob, it's like, it doesn't matter what I would do, you know, or, um, I think that another thing that I hate is like, you know, Cindy was an was a totally average, unremarkable person until X Y Z thing happened to her. And I'm like, then why are we reading about Cindy? I don't, you know, there has to be something remarkable about her, or why is the book about her? <laughs> um, like, there there are just cliches like that that I advise against. Like, I guess what I would say is look at your favorite books, or especially look at the comp titles that you're using, and see what their back cover copy looks like, and come up with a pitch that's sort of in that vein. Um, and so then after the pitch, which again should only be like two or three paragraphs at the most, um, then just go into like a short bio of yourself um, and list sort of anything that I should know about you. Um, usually the bio is not that important in fiction. Uh, in nonfiction, platform is really important and like who you are and expertise and all of that is important. But in fiction, what matters is the manuscript. So, you know, what's relevant in that section is like, have you been published uh, in like, especially in SFF, have you been published for short fiction in magazines like Uncanny or Lightspeed or Strange Horizons or Clark's World or whatever? Um, you know, tell me about that. Um, have you been nominated for, you know, a Nebula or a Hugo or whatever? Like, for, good for you. That's great. Uh, you know, that's not typical. But if you have been and you're querying, let me know that. Did you go to the Clarion Workshop or another writer's workshop that has sort of a... a a strong reputation. Um, none of these things are essential. It's just those would be relevant pieces of information. Or if your fantasy story is about, uh, is like based on, you know, the Roman Empire and you have a degree in the classics, tell me that, you know, or if your uh, sci fi has a lot to do with weapons development and like you used to work in weapons development, let me know. That's because that's that's something that can be a hook when I'm talking to an editor. Like this person has expertise on the subject they're writing about. Specific, uh, very uh, key, I don't do a lot of it, but in terms of military SF, um, which is like a, a popular commercial subgenre, um, 
if you have military experience, that's relevant because it's sort of like it lends some verisimilitude to the story. Um, but yeah, I mean, I find that people often feel the need to be like, I've always loved writing and, or, you know, ever since I was a child, I wanted to be, it's like, I don't, it's like, of course you love writing. You wrote a whole novel. Most people will never do that. So like, you know, mazel to you, but that's not really what we're talking about. I should hope so. Um, right. Like, yeah, like I hope you love writing. Otherwise, what are we doing here? So I would say, you know, time is money and, and for, for you as much as for the agent, like, because we get so many queries that you really want to like hit us with something concise that gets, it hits all its marks and that makes me go, Oh, okay. Yeah. I want to read that. Now the most important thing you can do is go to the agent's website and look at their query guidelines because we all want different stuff. Some people want uh, no pages. Some people want five pages. Some people want 20 pages. I require a full plot synopsis, which is not something that every agent requires, but I want you to spoil the whole plot for me in like a one to two page plot synopsis because I want to know that the ending holds together. And people are always like, oh, you got to read it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to read it if I can tell from the synopsis that I don't think it holds together. So, you know, it's because it's an art form as much as it is a reading experience like aging. I mean, that's how I see it anyway. I see agenting as, as sort of a creative process and I don't have a problem with working on something that's going to need work, but I need to know, like if I, I need to know from the synopsis, like, Hmm, this ending doesn't feel right. Like, so that when I'm reading it, I'm keeping that in mind. And then later, if I want to rep it and I'm on the call with them, I say like, I don't think this ending works. What do you think about if this happened or if this character lived or if this twist went this way or something like that because you know it's a collaborative process and i'm not going to we need to see eye to eye in terms of the vision for the book because i don't like the last thing you need is an agent who wants your book to be something it isn't you know what i mean or something that you don't want it to be so that but so basically that's what i uh i guess those are my like general query letter tips oh don't write your query letter in the voice of a character people do that like people do that and they think it's cute and it's just confusing um and it's also like not original because we get a couple of those like every month and they're always annoying because i'm just like what who what are you talking oh you're writing in the character voice and then i'm like ugh. yeah um (laughs) it's just not my just not my favorite personally i mean for all I know, there's an agent out there who loves those, but I've never met them. <laughs> well, that okay. I, that was an admirable level of detail. I hope if anyone is curious about the querying process, I hope you did take notes on that because that was talk about. Uh, I mean, thank you for for going through it in such detail because I think that's going to be really useful if anyone is is getting ready to do that. So for sure, and that. I would say I would say when you're querying, like in terms of who you should be querying. Um, I would say, like, look up who represented the books that you love. And, you know, sometimes, like, I, I'm, like, a loud, like, loser on Twitter all day because I work from home and I get bored. So, you know, I, I may sometimes, like, there are a lot of us on Twitter, and you may think, like, oh, this person is my dream agent, or, like, this is the person I desperately want to write. Your dream agent is the person who really believes in your book. Like, it shouldn't, it has nothing to do with, like, the way you perceive us on social media or whatever else. So I would encourage you to sort of look at who's rep the books that you love, look at, um, you know, who comes recommended by your friends or whatever. I, I would, um, I will say sometimes sales 
track isn't everything. Like I was very lucky to have authors take a chance on me when I was new and often a newer agent, if they are at a like legit agency and are being mentored properly is a really good option because they'll be really hungry. They won't have a lot of clients. They'll be, um, you know, really eager to prioritize you and that can be great. Um, so what I would advise basically is having a list of the agents you want to try. And I don't, sometimes people are like, you shouldn't try your first, like people are sometimes afraid to, to query their top desired agents first because they want feedback on the query letter. Um, I think that's a bad idea because if you, like if I get a query from someone who says, hi, I have an offer. Would you like to see this? Typically my answer is going to be like, not really. If you haven't already queried me, um, cause I don't want to have to rush to, cause then I'm not like really giving it the, the analysis it deserves. Um, and it, it's, so you don't want to be in a situation where an agent who isn't necessarily the agent you want offers. And then you have two weeks to say yes or no. And then you have to suddenly start querying all of the people who you were like holding off on until you got like, so just query everybody you want to query. I would say like, it's fine to do waves, but I would start with the people you really want to work with. Um, and hopefully it works out. And if it doesn't, I'm always open to getting another query down the line from an author I've rejected in the past on query. Or if you've revised something significantly and I did like it and requested it, but just it, it didn't go all the way for me. Like if you come back a year later and say like, hi, I've like been in workshop or I like have been meeting with a writing group or I had like a bunch of beta readers and I really reconstructed this whole thing. And would you like to see it again? Oftentimes I will. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, um, there's something to be said for persistence. And, and sometimes it just takes a little massaging to make the book really work. Um, so yeah, I mean, one place that you can go to, uh, sort of investigate, agents is like, I mean, we all have our own websites typically, or at least our agency. will. I have a personal website at connorgoldsmith.com, but like my agency, Fuse Literary also has fuseliterary.com where you can see all of our clients and all of the books we've sold. Um, but also Publishers Marketplace is a really great resource. Uh, unfortunately you have to pay for it and it is a little expensive, but uh, Publishers Marketplace will show you, you know, every deal basically. I mean, not every agent reports their deals to PM, but I would say most of us do. Um, and sometimes like I have like five deals that I haven't put up there yet because we're still negotiating things or we're still, um, or like we're waiting on a press release before we put it out there or whatever, like, cause someone has an exclusive or something like that. So it's not always up to the minute, but it can at least show you the kind of work that an agent tends to do. Like you can get sort of a sense of my list from looking at that, but you know, you can also get a sense of that for free by just going to my website. So it depends on the agent, but I would say like, you know, do your research, come up with maybe 15, 20 people you want to query and do like, um, you know, seven or eight at a time maybe and, and see how it goes. Okay. Awesome. That again, thank you for that. I'm sure that we have listeners who are curious about this. So I, I hope they will appreciate that. And, I'm and sure again, this is all just, these are all just my opinions and there may be uh, other agents who like think I'm an idiot. So well, please feel free to ask, ask other people questions, but yeah, these are absolutely. just my hot takes. Um, but you know, as one Connor to another, I, I endorse these, these Connor takes. Uh, love that. Love a, love a good Connor solidarity moment. So speaking of Connor solidarity, this is this is where this has been a really edifying and interesting hour. I I would like to know before we sign off here, do you want to plug some uh, recent or upcoming work by your clients? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to just talk about my uh, SFF clients. Um, I have, uh, I'll just go alphabetically based by first name because I have a list of, I have like, I'm like looking at my client list. Um, so Alex White, who is an amazing author, um, the third book in their series of Salvagers is coming out from Orbit Books this summer. Um, the first book in that series is called A Big Ship at the Edge of the Universe. It's like a high-flying so widescreen space opera with, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I, it's kind of like a cowboy bebop or firefly or guardians of the galaxy, kind of like ragtag found family space adventure kind of thing. It has a lesbian romance at the center of it, which I really enjoyed. Um, it's just a really fun series. Uh, and we're finishing that trilogy. And then, um, Alex just re-upped for a new trilogy with orbit that, uh, we pitched as um, Neon Genesis Evangelion meets Max Gladstone's Empress of Forever, which was a pitch <laughs> I was really proud of. Um, and we're really excited about that, but that's not going to come out for a while because we're writing it right now. Uh, we, I say, as though I'm like, you know, looking over Alex's shoulder, but I, I give input. Um, Alex also uh, writes tie-in novels sometimes and um, their alien novel, Alien the Cold Forge, was a big hit with the alien fans. Uh it's um, a really, it's really scary. I, I recommend it, um, but I'm biased, obviously. Uh, in terms of other people with work coming out, um, or just recently actually came out, um, my client Damien Angelical Walters, who's a horror author, her uh, novel The Dead Girls Club just came out uh, about a month ago. Uh, I actually didn't sell that book. Um, I offered on it and then she ended up going with another agent and then that agent left the business and I swooped because I was like, I love this author. Um, so sometimes you find each other in sort of the long and winding road. Um, but, uh, that book's great. It's a sort of a psychological thriller, horror novel. Um, Cass Morris, uh, is a, a fantasy author. She has a historical fantasy series called the, uh, the Avon cycle at Daw books, um, which is, set in an alternate ancient Rome that's uh, built on elemental magic. Uh, it's a book list in a starred review called it um, like I Claudius meets Game of Thrones, which sounded pretty good to me. Um, the first book is called From Unseen Fire, and we just announced the second book's title, Give Way Tonight. Uh, that one will be out um, this fall, if all goes according to plan. The thing about publishing is sometimes things get you know pushed or whatever, but that's the, that's the plan at the moment. Um, Claire Humphrey, uh, doesn't have anything new on the horizon just yet, but, uh, her book Spells of Blood and Kin was the Sunburst Award winner, which is sort of the Canadian Hugo is what I call it when I'm explaining it to people. Um, and that's a fun, uh, dark contemporary fantasy set in Toronto. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of anything else coming out soon. Um, well, Margaret Kiljoy, uh, has... And uh, Margaret Kiljoy is another one of my clients. Um, she wrote uh, a series of novellas for Tor.com um, called the Daniel Kane series. The first one was um, The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion. And the second one was The Barrel Will Summit at May. And they're sort of like crust punk Lovecraft goes to Burning Man, fun anarchist demon stories. Uh, Alan Moore blurbed them, which was pretty chic. I couldn't believe that happened. Nice. Um, yeah, no, I was like, you know, I mean, I, I was just like, how did this happen? And then I realized that like Margaret is a like 
an anarchist political activist trans woman who sings in a black metal band and like lives in like a witchy house that she built herself. And I was like, so you're kind of like if Alan Moore could invent an author to support, I feel like that's like a very, very on brand. I was like, so this actually does make sense to me now that I think about it, but also the books are great. Um, I, uh, I have, um, again, like sometimes these things aren't, like there's the stuff in the works that I can't talk about is sort of the thing, but, uh, but Margaret is doing a, um, an IP novel, uh, Italian novel for, um, the Freeport setting, uh, that Green Ronin RPGs are, do in the Pathfinder stuff that we're pretty excited about. Um, and then, um, my client Sunny Moraine, we have a lot of projects percolating. Sunny's brilliant. Um, they have a lot of short fiction that you can read. Um, they, uh, they have a PhD in um, war and genocide studies, which is dark, but you know, it, it really has made a lot, their work really fascinating to read and uh, explore on that level. Um, my client, Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam, which is a great name. Uh, again, like projects percolating, but her short fiction has been nominated for a bunch of awards and you could find that uh, by looking her up. And I think, think that's all my sci-fi fantasy clients if i left you out i love you so much and i apologize and you can call me and yell at me um but i think <laughs> oh oh uh I'm, i a new a new person seraphina burson sage who's brilliant but like we're, we're on submission so you know sorry that's not coming out yet but i just remembered and i don't want to forget her so now i'm done thank you for that um for allowing me to do all of that okay well this has been a really interesting uh, there's a lot to unpack in this episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. And I just want to say, Connor Goldsmith, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you for having me. I really, I love, um, I love getting a chance to talk shop and, uh, I like getting a chance to know other Connors. Um, so if anybody wants to, if any of the listeners would like to, to, uh, connect with me on social media, um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, and Instagram at um, Dream of Organon, which I know that's like annoying, but sorry, like I said, I couldn't get my name. Uh, it's just Dream of O R G O N O N, um, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm like I said, I work from home and I uh, get bored, so I'm usually on Twitter a couple times a day, and I would love to chat. Awesome. By the way, I always thought that your username was like Dream of Gorgon. So thanks for clearing that up for me. I know people know people. Didn't, no, it's the first. Um, it's uh, it's from Kate Bush's Cloud Busting. Uh, it's I Still Dream of Organon is the first lyric of that song. Organon was <laughs> Wilhelm Reich's. Organon was Wilhelm Reich's laboratory where he did all his like weird pseudoscience with orgon energy. Um, no, I didn't think I was going to use it professionally and then it just kind of stuck and now it's like a brand. So I would feel weird changing it. And I can't get my name anyway until someone, you know, gets rid of that teenager who tweeted at Katie Price once 10 years ago. So, uh, <laughs> that's, oh man. Well, he's, I mean, so. now I'm realizing now he's like, now he's like 27 or something. And I'm like, does he know, does this, does this does adult he understand man what he's, he's done that to he's, all of us? that he's fucked, that he's fucking up my SEO? No, I don't know. <laughs> Hey, thanks so much, um, man. This has been great. <laughs> Thank you. This has been really great. Thank you for having me. And I hope um, I hope that this was uh, edifying and, and interesting. And I hope I didn't bore anybody too terribly. So you certainly so did not. Me. And thanks to our listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye.